the scripture this morning. Today's reading comes from Genesis 2, 4 through 15. These are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. When no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land and there was no man to work the ground. And a mist was going up from the land and was watering the whole face of the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and the man became a living creature. And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of, knowledge, of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed out of Eden to water the garden, and there it divided and became four rivers. The name of the first is the Fishon, it is the one that flowed around the whole land of Havilah, where there is gold. And the gold of that land is good. Aromatic resin and onyx stone are there. The name of the second river is the Gihon. It is the one that flowed around the whole land of Cush. And the name of the third river is the Tigris, which flows east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden, to work it and keep it. Please remain standing and join me in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you again for this day. Um, thank you for Mark as he comes up here and preaches your word, Lord. Just use his words to sink deep into our heart, God, that um, they're inspired by you, Father. And I just pray that you would work on our hearts um, as we think on these things, meditate on these things, and pray, God, and think about you. And I ask that you'd bless this time in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Pastor Kyle leaving his junk everywhere. I gotta <laughs> well, thank you so much, Heather, for that this morning. And um, I apologize for giving you the reading with all the hard words. Uh, <laughs> um, before, we, uh, before we get into our sermon this morning, I uh, just want to take a minute and pray for uh, Pastor Kyle and Mandy and their family. Uh, and Simon, yes, thank you. Simon DeGagney, that's the uh, newest member of Refuge Church, Simon James DeGagney. Um, so we're going to pray for them. They're not here this morning, obviously, for that reason. So uh, please join me in prayer. Dear Lord, we lift up uh, our pastor and his family, Lord. Uh, we thank you so much for your blessing. We thank you for the health of Mandy and Simon, Lord. And we just pray, Lord, that you will bless him and keep him and that you would shine your face on him, Lord. God, we pray for um, just a good time of rest and um, recuperation and also just bonding right now for their family, Lord. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Okay, this morning we are in Genesis chapter 2. And um, I just want everybody, as we start here, to take a minute and close your eyes. And don't fall asleep yet. But uh, close your eyes and I want you to imagine the perfect world. When you think of the perfect world, what does it look like? Oh, man, we get some giggles. I, I want to know what that person's thinking. 
when you think of the perfect world, maybe you're imagining uh, that you're on an exotic beach location somewhere. Or maybe you are thinking that you're in a cabin in the woods. Or maybe you went to, to start to think more, something along the lines of there's no sickness or pain or something like that. Um, there's a lot of different things that we might picture uh, the perfect world would be like. I, I did a little bit of research. This question was asked on the internet, and there was a, a few, few tongue-in-cheek answers. Um, here are some of the responses that I found to what is the perfect world. In the perfect world, people can differentiate between your, Y-O-U-R, and your, Y-O-U, apostrophe, R-E. <laughs> In the perfect world, you can eat whatever you want without getting fat. I like that one. Uh, <laughs> In the perfect world, the Wi-Fi that you want to steal has no password. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, in a perfect world, certain unnecessary movie sequels are never made. I'm looking at you, Rocky Five, right? <laughs> uh, there's always milk for the cereal. Uh, you can be Batman. Um, the weatherman is always right, right? Um, the other sock never goes missing. Oh, man. Uh, this one has gotten me more than once. AM and PM never get mixed up on the alarm clock. Um, and, and this one, when I read it, I, I like wanted to cringe. The perforated pages tear out cleanly every time. Oh, man, when you rip off a page from a notebook and it just has that little like tag stuff on the end, it's so annoying. Um, so a perfect world. These are obviously a little bit more tongue-in-cheek than maybe we thought of. Uh, but... We know that our world is not perfect, right? That's why you're imagining probably something other than, than what, you currently, uh, what you currently are living. But the passage that we talk about today is probably the closest that we've seen to a perfect world. Uh, this is the Garden of Eden, right? Uh, at this time, there was still sin, right? We s we'll see in the next few weeks that Satan is, is in the Garden. So we can't say that it was perfect, but this was pretty close, um, in our text this morning, we read that there was river flow, rivers flowing, that there was precious stones, precious metals. This place was beautiful. Um, this garden, even, even the word Eden can mean pleasure or luxury, right? So this, this, was, this was nice. This was about a, as close to a perfect world as we've had. Um, and we know, as we said, we know that probably not what we think of our own lives right now. But what would a perfect world mean for us? Well, this morning, we're going to take a look at what man's role was in the garden to see if maybe we can get a little piece of that perfect world uh, where we live now. And we can see that Adam's, Adam's role, Adam and Eve, in this perfect world was to walk with God and work for God. So first, I actually forgot my... Um, my little uh, remote here. So I think, uh, there you go. Um, so in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, we see uh, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In that day, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Thanks, Mark. All right. I feel so much better with the remote in my hand. Uh, <laughs> So uh, these are the generations of the heavens and the earth when they were created. In that day, the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, this verse might seem a little bit 
innocuous. doesn't seem like maybe there's a ton there. And especially in this one part where it says the Lord God made the earth and the heavens. Now, if you've read the Bible at all, you've probably read this name of God. Um, you've probably come across it before. It seems pretty innocuous, but there's actually a, a big shift here. Uh, in Genesis 1, that whole chapter and the first three chapters, excuse me, the first three verses of chapter 2, when we see the name God, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Every time it uses the name God, the name that is used in Hebrew is Elohim. Um, but here we see a shift, and it says the Lord God. Now, this is a different name. This is Yahweh Elohim. And this is the first time that we see this name. And it's very important because Yahweh is the name of God. Lord God Yahweh Elohim. It's his proper name. Uh, in English translations of the Bible, uh, Yahweh is usually represented as the Lord. And as you can see, it um, uses all like small capitals a lot of times. That's like a weird formation. We don't normally see this. Or sometimes it'll be large capitals, but it's all capital letters. Now, in today's life, you know, in today's world, if I got a text from Tammy with all capital letters, I knew, you know, she's yelling at me. Well, that's not the case here. Um, they're not yelling the name of Lord. Uh, this is just to differentiate because the term Lord can be used for other things. And here it's his name. This is God's name, his personal name. Um, Yahweh Elohim. The first name, Yahweh, is who he is. And the second name is what he is. So he's Lord, that's his name, and God, he is God. That is what he is. A, a way that I tried to think of it was, um, you know, my personal care physician is Dr. Tryon. Doctor is what she is. Tryon is who she is. That's her name. Um, same thing with President Trump. There's, you know, there's these indicators of what they are, and then there's their actual name. So we see here Yahweh Elohim is being used. And in fact, in chapters 2, 3, and 4, that's what we see over and over again. It's Yahweh Elohim. Uh, in chapter 3, the term Elohim by itself is only used once. And that's when the serpent and Eve are having a conversation. And we'll get to that. Um, but other than that, we see Yahweh Elohim. Another time that this name is used, Yahweh, is a little bit more famously is in Exodus chapter 3, and it's verses 13 to 15. In this passage, God has said to Moses, um, I want you to lead the Israelites out of Egypt. And Moses says, all right, but look, it's just me, Moses. How are they supposed to know that, that they should follow me? And God says, you tell them, I am who I am. You tell him, the Lord God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob sent you. Yahweh sent you. This, they'll, they'll know who he is because they're using his name. Okay. Um, and in that text, you can see that when he says, I am who I am, that's all capitalized there too. Uh, it's to, to differentiate and let you know this is Yahweh. Now, this is important because the, Moses, who he's writing to when he's writing Genesis, He's writing to the Jews, right? So they would know, as they've been reading, Elohim, God has created all through chapter 1. God has done this. God has done this. And then we get to chapter 2, and we see Yahweh Elohim, our God. 
this, this, is, this is our God, Yahweh. He's, this is the one that has been doing all this. Um, in the third century, when uh, the Jews were, or when they were translating the Bible to Greek, uh, at this point, the Jews had avoided pronouncing Yahweh altogether because they were afraid to commit blasphemy. It's a pretty noble goal, and, and it certainly is um, convicting to me when I think of how easily I throw around the name of God, how easily I can uh, talk about him and, and, and not stop and, and think of the, the reverence that I might show. But at the same time, I also find it ironic uh, because the Jews in the third century, they're refusing to use his name when in fact here in Genesis 2, part of the reason that we see that God is, they're, they're using the name Yahweh is to show that it's a personal relationship. This is a personal God. Yahweh Elohim, th this is the God that I know. And they're, uh, they are avoiding committing blasphemy. They're avoiding using his name when in fact he wants us to know. I am your God. I am personal with you. He was walking with Adam. Um, there's a personal nature. And that's the shift that's made here. Uh, it's interesting because we're transitioning from chapter 1, where we're talking to God in a more um, generic name, that, uh, and now we're using a more personal name. And this is at the same time that we're sh shifting from chapter 1 to chapter 2 to talk about this personal interaction that God is having with Adam. We're about to get into the next, next few chapters with Adam and Eve and how we see a lot of their time together in the garden and uh, interacting with one another. We're going from this higher level creation account in chapter 1 to a more personal account of his relationship with creation. Um, Elohim, some people will say Elohim is used when describing his relationship to the universe and Yahweh is used when describing his relationship with humans in these uh, two chapters. So, this is the same God. This is Moses telling Israelites, this is the same God that's made a covenant with us. Uh, and he was with Adam in the garden. Chapter 1 pictures a sovereign, transcendent deity, while chapter 2 presents uh, an imminent and personal one. Sometimes for me, we're going we're gonna to kind of, so it's obviously it's the same God. It's not two different gods, but it's different uh, different uh, aspects of his personality, we'll say. Uh, sometimes it's easier for me to accept this chapter one God, right? And not just me, but really it's easier for the world to accept. There's this God that is a supernatural being that creates, and he's just kind of out there speaking things into existence, right? If you go out into the world and you tell someone you believe in God, I think that's kind of the God that they're thinking of. And really, it's not going to be too shocking to them. In fact, there's been studies that, are d that have been done recently that say 9 out, nine out of 10 Americans believe in God. 90%, that's a pretty, pretty big percentage. 9 out of 10 Americans believe in God. But this is where sometimes we have an issue, and certainly our culture has an issue. When we shift from this transcendent uh, sovereign deity to an imminent and personal one. People have a little bit more trouble with that. If you tell people that you believe in God, okay, that's fine. If you tell people I talk to him and he talks to me, 
now you're on the crazy train, <laughs> right? Like, you're a weirdo, right? Well, this is why sometimes we have this issue when we're transitioning from the different aspects of God. Yahweh, a personal God that I interact with and speak with. And that's what we're seeing in verse 4. And certainly throughout our time in the garden, we'll see that God is very personal. Now, to me, I think there's a couple reasons why we struggle with a personal God. And the first reason is pride. And the second reason is shame. Now, I use the word shame because I was listening to Joe last year. I wanted to say guilt, but I remembered from his sermon that it's not guilt, it's shame. Uh, pride and shame. Those are the two things that, that cause us to have an issue with a personal God. And they might seem like they're kind of opposing, but really, I think they're tied together in a lot of ways. Um, you see, when we have a trouble with, when we have trouble with uh, trying to comprehend or interacting with God, most of the time it's because we're forgetting or we don't know the gospel. Uh, Tim Keller in his book, uh, The Meaning of Marriage, which we've been going through a study on Thursday nights um, based off of this book. This is what he says about the gospel. He says, the gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. When we're faced with a difficult situation, sometimes instead of remembering that Keller quote about the gospel, I think of, I can do this on my own. I don't need God, right? In my day-to-day -day life, a lot of times I act as though I don't need God. I got this. That's my pride, telling me I can do it on my own. I don't need to take the time. I don't need to stop. I don't need to focus. I can do it. I'm forgetting that I'm more sinful and flawed in myself than I could ever believe. Uh, so then eventually I realize, come across the, you know, after the pride is kicked in, I realize, oh, yeah, you know what? I do need God. I can't do this on my own. And then shame kicks in. I'm ashamed that I didn't go to God in the first place. I'm ashamed that I didn't uh, trust in him and th th thought I could do it on my own. So then I say, oh, I'm not worth it. I'm not worth it to God. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not worth his help. Pride and shame. Both prevent us from turning to God. Both prevent us from using his Holy Spirit in just our everyday lives. I was talking with Tammy about this, um, and as I said it out loud, I was like, man, this is pretty heavy. I don't know if I should say it, um, but here we are, and I'm going to. <laughs> so uh, kind of in addition to what Keller was saying or, or kind of growing it out a little bit, when he says we're more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared hope or ever dared believe, as bad as you make yourself feel about yourself, you're worse than that. Right? Maybe you're like me. Sometimes I make myself feel pretty bad about myself. But the truth is that we're worse than that. You know what God says? He says our righteousness is as filthy rags. 
He's saying the best that you have is like what you use to clean up the leak from the last storm. Ah, right? But when we stay there, when we stop there, that's, that's shame. That's where we just feel shame. What we need to remember is the second part. At the very same time, at the very same time, we're more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever could hope for. That's because it's about him. That's because it's about him. This is the good news. The gospel means good news. Jesus says, or in Romans, um, Paul says, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. When we were at our worst, Jesus loved us so much that he died for us. This is the good news. This is the good news of the gospel, that it's not about us. It's not about us. It's about what Jesus did and how he sees us. You see, I forget. There's a, a wonderful song that I love. Um, and one of the lines, it says, I'm a child of the one true king. We forget that we're a child of the king. What more personal relationship is there than parent-child, right? I've only been a parent for, you know, few months, less than a year, but I have gotten very personal with Daisy. Tammy is probably in the back right now getting very personal, changing her diaper and cleaning her. That's pretty personal, right? There's no more personal relationship than parent-child. We see that we're a child of God. This is personal. As a Christian, that's our identity. And these things hit on the, the crux of why a personal God is difficult. That pride and shame, but also a personal God forces us to make decisions on sin. Right? He encounters us with sin. We're confronted it. Whether it's pride or shame, like we were talking about, or maybe it's lust or anger or addiction or anything else, we're confronted with them personal God confronts us with ourselves. And sometimes we, we don't want to see that. So instead, we try to just think of that Genesis chapter 1 God that's off somewhere in the heavens, all powerful, but, but we don't really interact with him very much. So in case we're tempted with this pride, in case... Um, in case we're tempted to thinking that we can, we can, we don't need God for our best life. I can go through day to day. I can, I can take care of it on my own. God reminds us in verse 7 that we were created from dust. Genesis 2, 7 says, Then the Lord God formed the man of dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. Formed from dust. In Hebrew, the term... Um, the verb for formed, I believe it's yatzer, uh, is tied closely with a potter finishing clay. We see that analogy quite a bit throughout scriptures. In Isaiah 64, 8, it says that we're the clay and God is the potter and that we're the work of his hands. That's a direct reference here to Genesis 2, 7. In Romans 9, 20 to 21, it says, does the clay have a right 
to say to the potter, why am I like this? Right? The pot can't say to the person who made it, hey, why did you make me like this? No, <laughs> that doesn't work. Uh, Jeremiah 18, 1 through 23, that whole uh, section of that chapter talks about how the Lord is excuse me, powerful enough to treat entire nations like the clay. It's not just this example of how he formed this one man, and it's not just, just us. He could treat entire nations like that. He's the one that made it. Isaiah 45, 9 asks if the clay can ask questions of the potter. Over and over again, God leads us back to humility and back to this creation story of how we were created by him from dust. And even if you look at the Hebrew words, Adam is the word for man, right? A-D-A-M. Well, the word for ground, um, where it says from the dust of the ground, is Adama, A-D-A-M-A-H. These ideas are so closely tied together, their, their words have the same root. Man and ground, Adam and Adama. And that's his reminder to us when we start to think that we can do things on our own that we were made out of the ground by God. So in a perfect world, we see that we'll walk with God in a personal way. That's what just this name change, just this shift can show us. And certainly, we see it throughout the rest of the time in the garden that there was a personal relationship there. So in a perfect world, we'll walk with God in a personal way. But part of the problem is the that the world has with this personal God is that he asks something of us. He, he asks us not only to walk with him, but also to work for him, to work for God. Even in the garden, man was supposed to work. Uh, and, and it makes sense that God would want us to work just what we know of him through the, these first two chapters. In, in chapter 1, we see that man was made in his image. And we also see that God spent six days working to create creation. Uh, in verse 8, it says, And the Lord God planted a garden in Eden, in the east, and there he put the man whom he had formed. He planted this garden. God works. probably have heard the Lord works in mysterious ways, right? Indication he works. Um, Genesis, in uh, Genesis chapter 2, Pastor Kyle talked about this last week, that uh, on the seventh day the Lord rested, rested from working. We're made in his image. God works. The insinuation, therefore, is that we should work. And in verse 15, there's a specific command to Adam. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Work it and keep it. This denotes tending and preparing it. And Pastor Kyle spoke last week about uh, creation and how it's our duty to care for creation, right? This is a very, very clear example that that is our duty. We should care for it. Um, and that's part of the work that Adam had in the garden. Uh, this is the interesting thing. Maybe you guys are like me. Sometimes I get things a little bit confused. And sometimes I like to tie together the idea of work with um, the fall of man and the resulting curse. Right? And we're going to talk about this in the upcoming weeks uh, when we talk about the fall of man. But uh, work 
is not a curse of sin. There is pain in labor, and it, it's maybe a little bit harder. Um, but in the garden, Adam was working. Uh, he hasn't sinned yet, and he's still working. He's in paradise. This place is awesome. We talked about it. Gold, precious stones, and work. Doesn't always, uh, doesn't always go along with my idea. How many of you, when I started this morning and said, I want you to imagine the perfect world, you just thought immediately about mowing the lawn and about uh, going to work and where you spend your 40 hours every week? Probably not many. Maybe some of you, but probably not many. Um, we have these grandiose ideas of what heaven will be like, but I don't think many of us think of how in a perfect world we work. Uh, when you see a kid in the middle of August and you ask him, so are you ready for vacation, school vacation to be over and you're ready to get back to school? Most kids don't say, oh yeah, I can't wait. Right? Now, I'm sure someone will come up to me afterwards and say, my kid was the one who loved school. There are some like that, certainly. But a lot of kids will not say, oh yeah, I can't wait for vacation to be over to go back to doing schoolwork. Tonight, when you go to bed, you're not going to say, yes, one more sleep until I get to go back to work. Right? That's, that's not our, that's not our uh, normal reaction. Um, but work isn't something to be avoided. In fact, productive work is part of God's good purpose for man in creation. That's part of what he wants for us. Uh, there's a story that Warren Wearsby shares in his commentary, and I'm going to read it to you. Uh, he says, a retired man living in a city got tired of seeing an ugly vacant lot as he took his daily walk. So he asked the owner for permission to plant a garden there. It took days to haul away the accumulated rubbish and even more time to prepare the soil, but the man worked hard. The next year, the lot was aglow with life and beauty, and everybody took notice. God has certainly given you a beautiful piece of property, said a visitor as he admired the flowers and the landscape. Yes, he has, the busy gardener replied, but you should have seen this property when God had it all by himself. <laughs> The reply was a wise one and not at all irreverent. You see, and this is the point that I really want to bring home, the same God who ordains the end, a beautiful garden, also ordains the means to the end, someone to do the work. You may say, God wants such and such for my life. He wants this blessing. Well, if he does, then that probably means that he wants you to do the work that it takes for that outcome. We often hear that God's plan is to prosper us, excuse me, prosper us, and that's true, but doesn't that possibly mean that his plan is for us to do the work that goes along with it? There's a Swedish proverb that says, God gives every bird his worm, but he does not throw it into the nest. I'm not saying that we can do this all on our own. We know that with God, all things are possible. Um, it isn't with Mark, all things are possible. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 says, um, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. My father-in-law loves, uh, loves to quote that verse. And this is a passage warning against idleness. He's saying if you're, if you're not willing to work, then you shouldn't eat. This is part of what God is calling us to. Uh, in James 2, 26, we see faith without works is dead. 
Uh, 1 Corinthians 3.9 says, we are laborers together with God. This whole passage in 1 Corinthians 3 says, it's talking about working for the kingdom and Paul's opinion that there's enough to go around. There's plenty of work to be done. Uh, in the book, Your Work Matters to God, Doug Sherman and William Hendricks, not our William Hendricks, uh, <laughs> unless you're a writer on the side and I don't know about it, uh, <laughs> list five major reasons why work is valuable. And when we work for God, these are the benefits that we get. All right, First, through work, we serve people. We get the, op the opportunity to serve those around us. And through work, we meet our own needs. Right? This is important. We, we don't work, we don't eat. And not just our needs, but through work, we meet our family's needs. We have the opportunity to meet the needs of those around us by working. Through work, we earn money to give to others. And through work, we love God. Now, that fourth one especially, just kind of our individualistic society um, kind of, I think, would bristle against this a little bit. So I get to work so that I can give someone else something. And that's supposed to be a benefit to me? Right? But if we have our heart and mind transformed, then we know that any opportunity that we get to serve other people is a blessing to us. That's a blessing to us. And I challenge you to do it, to try it, and see. Because it is. <laughs> it's true. It is a blessing. And when you do it more and more, you learn that, that you actually reap reward from it. Um, so work is a good thing, right? God has ordained it. And that's great because there's a lot of work to be done. Uh, why is it important to have the right attitude about work? Because there's so much to be done. Uh, my mom loves to tell a story about how uh, years ago there was an older lady, a grandmother, who uh, was very sick and was about to pass away. And in a conversation that she was having, uh, the grandmother was, was very nervous and she said, when I die, who's going to pray for my grandkids' salvation? And now my mom, you know, certainly from that conversation, she took on that mantle and, and she has, has prayed, spent time praying. But see, there's this idea that when there's a void, some, some, there's still work to be done. There's work that needs to be done. We just had recently Billy Graham just passed away, right? Man. What a void that's left behind. There's work to be done. There's a mantle to pick up. There's things that, that we can do. Um, from, so there's a, a group called the Barna Research Group, and they do a lot of research about, um, certainly about uh, religion and different things like that in the United States. And they did a study, uh, or they, they do a study every year, uh, top 100 cities in the US, and how biblically minded they are, right? So uh, for the purposes of this study, the area from Providence, Rhode Island to New Bedford, Mass, is considered a city. That's the amount of people that are there. You know, like that's, that's just a large city, and it, it's within the top 100. From 2013 to 2015, three years in a row, Providence to New Bedford ranked dead last in the most biblically-minded cities in the country, right? We've moved out 
in 2017, we made it up to third from last. Um, so Providence to New Bedford, third from last, second from last, Boston. So where we live in the country is the least biblically minded area of the country. We don't have to look far to see the work that needs to be done. It's all around us. It's, it's right here. In Luke 9, verse 62, Jesus is talking with some people who are going to follow him. And one of the guys says, I'll be there, but I just have to go and bury my father. And another guy says, yep, I'm going to follow you, but I just gotta, let me just go say goodbye to my family before I come. Seem fairly reasonable requests, right? And what does Jesus respond with? He uses uh, an image of working the fields, and he says, don't turn around and take your hand off the plow. Don't look back. you got to keep going. Don't go and bury your father. Let the dead bury their dead. You don't have to say goodbye. you got to go. There's a lot to be done. There's a lot of work to be done. Don't, don't look back. we got to go. Let's go. We see it even here at Refuge, right? How many times have we seen Victor and Bill throwing down carpet, painting walls? You know, we got people that come every week, and I don't want to even name names because there's so many I know I'll forget, but people that come every week and clean here at the church, right? There's, there's work to be done. There's plenty of things. Um, so we know that work is good. We know there's plenty of it to be done, and now why? So why do we work? We work for God, right? That's, that's what we see um, in Genesis 2, God says, put him in the Garden of Eden, work it, and keep it. When we work, we're working for God. In Colossians 3, 23 to 24, it says, Whatever you do, do your work heartily as for the Lord rather than for men, knowing that from the Lord you will receive the reward of the inheritance. It is the Lord Christ whom you serve. Uh, Maybe you guys remember the TV show Friends. There was a character on the show uh, named Chandler, and he worked in a corporate environment, right? Well, it's kind of a, the running gag that nobody knew what Chandler did. Nobody could explain what his job was. Nobody knew, uh, nobody that he worked with knew what he did. <laughs> um, well, we always made the joke about Tammy at our last job that it was kind of the same thing. Nobody knows what you do. Right? Nobody can explain it. Nobody can understand it. Uh, but Tammy used to work at a, an investment bank in Boston. And for years, we talked about how she just didn't feel fulfilled in what she was doing. Um, and yet, no matter what, every conversation that we had, she would finish with, but I'm working for God. I'm working for God. It doesn't matter where you are. It doesn't matter what you're doing. What does he say? Whatever you do. So whatever your job is, do it heartily for the Lord. Sometimes we're, um, sometimes we, we get confused and we think, well, you know, the pastor, he definitely has to work for the Lord. And if it's a missionary, yeah, their work is definitely for the Lord. That's not what we see here. Whatever we do is for the Lord. Um, Adam is called to manual labor, and that was for the Lord. Sometimes we feel that our work is not as important 
But if it's what God has called us to do, if it's what God has ordained, then it's important. In Paul's declaration to the Thessalonians about working in order to eat, he talks about how he and the people that he was with, Paul, they worked. They made tents. They worked so they could provide for themselves so they wouldn't be a burden on everybody else. There's reasoning behind what you're doing. We talked before about, you know, through work, we serve people. You don't just serve people at a church. Whatever job you're at, you serve people. Meeting needs. Helping others. It doesn't matter what you do. Not everybody has to be a missionary preacher. God commanded Adam to work the garden, and he commands us to do jobs like that as well. It doesn't matter what you do. Whatever you do, do it for the glory of God. See, we're prone, like Tammy said, um, you know, she, she wasn't feeling fulfilled, but uh, we're prone to feeling fulfilled when we do the work for God. You see, our joy, the joy of our hearts is to serve him, to serve. These things that we're talking about, through serving people, giving to others, that's work, right? Serving God is our joy, but it's work. Serving one another is work. This study that we've been going through on Thursday nights, um, the marriage study, the first session that we went through, it talked about um, serving one another, how marriage isn't about me. It's about serving the other person. Um, but that's work. It's not easy. It's work. Uh, Rick Warren, he echoes this idea in his book, The Purpose Driven Life. He writes, work becomes worship when you dedicate it to God and perform it with an awareness of his presence. Work becomes worship when you dedicate it to God and perform it with an awareness, awareness of his presence. It doesn't matter what you do. It doesn't matter what your job is. It can be worship. Sometimes we get caught up in, oh, Sunday is the church day. That's the day that we do the God stuff, right? But every day can be worship. Whatever we're doing. If we're at home with our family, cleaning up after kids or whatever it is, that can be worship when we're doing it for God. So walk with God and work for God. We're seeing this as two aspects. It's not exhaustive list, but two aspects of what, uh, what life was like in the perfect world. And to make it more applicable, there's a, a specific area of my life that I see that I, that I struggle with these two things. That's my prayer life. You see, sometimes in my prayer life, as we talked earlier about God and, and that kind of adding his name and how, how we see a different part of God, the personal nature of God, sometimes in my prayer life I find it a lot easier to pray to that Genesis 1 God. That more like higher, creative, sovereign God, not that personal God. And what it turns into often is I bring in my shopping list, right? I bring God my shopping list. Look, I got three friends who need healing. Uh, there's two people who need to be saved. Uh, I need you to help me with this situation with Daisy. Um, and I give him my shopping list, and I just give it to him. I talk it at him, right? And that, please bless my food. You know, like all these things that I need, 
and I don't converse with him. It's not a personal interaction. It's really more just a, hey, you're God. You can do these things. Have at it, right? And that's what my prayer life can, can devolve into a lot of times. Now, on top of that, when I, when I'm, so when I miss the personal nature of it, I miss talking it through with him and finding out what will probably be the, the, the path. Because I want him to do all these things, but then to get down to the second point, am I willing to work for them? Am I willing to do the work, right? Uh, you know, my friend at work, he needs to be saved. God, please save him. Okay, are you willing to spend time each week with him to go get coffee and talk about spiritual things? Whatever it might be, just giving an example, are we willing to do the work that goes along with our requests? Now, I know that, that I'm not going to save this person, right? I can't do that, but God can use me. God can work through me. Am I willing to put in the effort, to put in the time? Am I willing to be a part of the solution? There's a pretty well-known song. It's by Mercy Me, and it's called I Can Only Imagine. Maybe you've heard of it. Uh, in fact, there's, they even just recently made a movie. I don't think it's come out yet. Um, that's based on the story of the song's creation. The idea behind the song is that we're really left to imagine what heaven will be like. We, we don't know really what it will be like. He wonders if we'll be jumping for joy in front of Jesus or if we'll just be standing in awe, not able to move, right? What will heaven be like? Well, we may not know exactly, but what we looked at this morning, walking with God, working for God, we can see a little taste of it. We can see a little slice of what heaven will be. And in fact, we can even experience it here on earth. Maybe you find yourself feeling unfulfilled and you're wondering what your purpose is. Well, God created us in the perfect environment to walk with him and to work for him. To have a personal relationship with him. Maybe you're a Christian and you think, ugh, I just can't wait until Jesus comes back. I'm going through all these struggles. I'm going through all, I, I just can't wait for heaven. And we are, we do look forward to heaven and, and that will be perfect. But, we can experience a part of it here. You know, in Ephesians uh, 1.14, Paul calls the Holy Spirit our guarantee of inheritance. That's kind of like the idea of a down payment. The Holy Spirit is like a down payment on our salvation. If, you get, if you're saved, if you accept Jesus Christ, you get the Holy Spirit in you and this is like our little slice of heaven. We can be with him. We can walk with God. And we can work for him. We can walk with him in a spiritual sense, if not a physical sense. And we can work for him, fulfilling our purpose here on earth. Uh, please join me in a word of prayer. Dear God, we just are so grateful for you this morning, God. We're grateful for your word. We're grateful that you created us out of dust, Lord, for a personal relationship with you, God. That you don't just sit up in heaven 
that you don't just stay detached, but that you came down, even in the form of your son, Jesus Christ, Lord, that you give us the Holy Spirit, that you're personal, that you spoke with Adam in the garden, Lord. God, we don't deserve it, but you love us so much that you give it to us. We thank you for that, Lord. We thank you that you even give us the opportunity to work, that this thing that we sometimes twist in our minds, Lord God, into something bad is actually a blessing. Help us to have a right mind, Lord. Help us to walk with you each day and to do everything that we do, that we work for you, God. It's in your name that we pray.